On this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to continue our series at looking at the various theories that make up family therapy. We began with discussing transgenerational theories, and one of the main themes of transgenerational theory is that problems are passed down through the generations. We discussed contextual therapy and the idea of exoneration, and we discussed object relations psychodynamic. And we jump from there to more modern theories of therapy that are solution-oriented. And we talked about solution-focused therapy, narrative therapy, where we're externalizing the problem. And then we talked about collaborative therapy. Now we're going to kind of jump back towards the beginning, closer to the transgenerational theories. And we're going to talk about symbolic experiential therapy. And I'm very excited about this because this is one of the theories in my eclectic or integrated view that I use. CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and Symbolic Experiential Therapy. And there are a lot of interesting things that I'm going to share about this theory. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. We've been on a hiatus for a few weeks now, as I have been quarantined. And so I'm excited to be back with you, to be out of quarantine, and to be discussing our original series on the theories that inform family therapy. Previously, we had discussed the transgenerational theories, and we had focused in on some aspects of each of those theories. Remember that problems are passed down through the generations. We talked about Bowen. We talked about triangulation. And remember with the transgenerational theories, these were person-focused. Insight was important to these theorists. Observation was important. And they saw the family as a group of individuals. And that's something important because as we moved ahead and kind of jumped ahead to the more modern theories, these were more solution-focused. They saw the therapist and the client as co-creators. And its methodology was postmodern. So as we move into symbolic experiential, we're going to be moving back to more of a person-focused orientation where insight and observation and reflection are all important and that families are a group of individuals. And as we move forward, we're going to transition from person-focused to more problem-focused. We're going to move from a focus on insight to more of low insight. We're going to move from family as a group of individuals to family as a unit. We're not going to throw out observation and reflection, but we're also going to focus more on interventions. And so this theory kind of finds its way in this transitional pivot moment where it's still going to be person-focused, insight-focused, 
observation and reflection as important and family as a group of individuals, but you're going to start seeing these little shifts as we move forward in the various theories that we're discussing. So I keep referring to symbolic experiential theory, and it is a theory, but what's interesting is one of their big ideas is that it's atheoretical, meaning that there is no theory. In fact, people who practice this type of therapy would believe that theories are restrictive. They would feel that theories can substitute for the therapist being present in the session. They feel that theories actually suck the life out of the therapy process. And they would then focus on the therapist. The therapist with their own experiences, with their own personality, with their own presentness in the therapy session is the important thing. It's the key thing. It's more important than theories. It's not that people who practice this type of therapy throw out theories. It's just their focus is not on theories because they believe they're restrictive. Instead, they focus on coaching the family, letting the family be itself, letting them play and letting them destruct or self-destruct in the therapy session as they choose. So theorizing is okay to them when it comes to like thinking through the problem, kind of figuring out what's happening in the family. But that's about where their focus on theory ends. And what's interesting is one of the main proponents, the original theorists in this type of therapy, the original therapist, actually had a statement he used to say where technique is what you use until the real therapist shows up, right? Until the real therapist has the courage, has the guts to show up, be present and authentic within the session. Again, they feel that family is a group of individuals. And they feel that some individuals or individuals within the family have to sacrifice something, whether that's their roles or their self-esteem or other types of unpleasant or difficult emotions in order for the family to survive. And that's what they believe keeps the family going. And I say survive, I don't say thrive. It's not that they're healthy and happy and safe and moving forward. It's more like they're surviving. They're doing bare minimum in order to be safe. And in order for them to be safe, somebody else in the family has to sacrifice, has to sacrifice something of themselves, whether they're doing this willingly or whether the family has placed that burden upon them. Now, before we get too far into the theory, let's talk a little bit about the therapists who helped create the theory, who are proponents of the theory. And that is Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir. They're kind of the biggest names known with this therapy. And there are others who have added to the theory, like Gus Napier and Walter Kimpler. And Gus Napier was actually a trainee of Carl Whitaker, um, but had some philosophical differences with him. And then we have Walter Kimpler, who has kind of added some interesting contributions to the theory and to the process of this type of therapy. But we're not going to get too far into depth on either one of those individuals. However, I will say that Carl Whitaker and Gus Napier actually wrote a book, and it's an excellent book, called The Family Crucible. I have it actually sitting in front of me here. I love to flip through it occasionally when I just need a reminder of how intense family therapy can be. But it's called The Family Crucible, The Intense Experience of Family Therapy by Augustus Napier with Carl Whitaker. And what's interesting about this book is it's actually going through a family in therapy with Carl Whitaker and Gus Napier. 
And so it's kind of their interactions with this family and kind of how they see like stress, polarization, escalation, scapegoating, triangulation, blaming, and the diffusion of identity all through the lens of doing therapy with this family. So it's just an excellent book. If you ever get a chance to read it, I would highly suggest it. It's not necessarily a textbook for family therapy by any means, but it's just a way to see experiential therapy played out in the therapy session. And that's why I really like this book. And I really like experiential therapy because it's not necessarily focused on theories, right? This book is a very easy read to give you an idea of just how intense family therapy can be. And when it comes to symbolic experiential therapy, like I said, there's two players, Carl Winokur, Virginia Satir, and they're very different people. Virginia Satir was very maternal. She was very much a mother figure, very gentle, very kind, and she was very open to touch and felt that physical touch was extremely important in therapy sessions. And even though I practice this type of therapy, I'm always very clear with the boundaries, whether it comes up or I say it initially, that I don't touch people. (laughs) There are therapists out there who are trained in symbolic experiential therapy and kind of the traditional way that Virginia Satir would have done the therapy. And they're very open to safe touch with their client's permission. And so I just want to preface that, that this is not unsafe touch. This is not inappropriate touch. This is appropriate and safe touch with the permission of the client. But unlike those therapists, even though I practice this theory, I do not touch people. And the reason why I do not touch people is because it is a personal boundary coming from childhood abuse. I do not feel comfortable or safe in touching people, and I don't necessarily like to be touched by others either. And so I'm very open and upfront about that boundary so that people can understand if that's something they're looking for for this type of therapy, that I would love to refer them to someone who can do those things for them. But unfortunately, that's not me. However, that doesn't necessarily negate how this therapy can be done. It's kind of like yin and yang when it comes to the two people who are prominent characters in this type of therapy. And On the one hand, you have the gentle, maternalistic, safe-touch-focused Virginia Satir. And then you have the brash, brazen Carl Whitaker. And that's kind of the the parallel opposite and the, you know, the, the difference in the system. And I find myself more geared towards his type of therapy, which is, I always call it hard charging therapy, you know. It's very aggressive in some ways, though appropriately. It's just very focused. It's very deterministic. And I think some of that comes from just my personality, which is why I often feel that people are drawn to the type of therapies that they do is because there's a connection between them and the theories and the methods of that type of therapy. And so Carl Whitaker is kind of classically trained in psychodynamics He was a self-taught psychiatrist, very brash, very brazen. I'll never forget sitting in grad school watching a video of Carl Whitaker doing therapy and having my mouth drop down to the floor on some of the things that he said to the clients that were almost appalling to me. But that was just his personality. And so that is kind of Carl Whitaker and then the Virginia Satir 
who has training in what they call the MRI Institute. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means at a different time because it's kind of a main component of a different theory. But just keep in mind that she did spend time at this MRI and focused a lot on communications theory. So there's a lot of that in her system of this type of therapy. And this is really an umbrella of multiple types of therapies. And so today we're really going to be discussing kind of the general theory, the general goal of this type of therapy, some of the general players. And then we're going to talk in the next couple episodes about some of the other types of therapies under the umbrella, like emotionally focused therapy and uh, internal family systems. So as I've said, there really is no theory here. They believe theories are restrictive. They believe coaching the family is important. They believe that healthy families have flexible roles and they can change them when necessary. They can triangulate and de-triangulate. You know, and we've talked about triangulation as when we use a third party to regulate anxiety. And they can de-triangulate, which means they can break the triangle. They can stop triangulating. They can play together. They can be passionate and sexual together. And they can be individuals who have autonomy, intimacy, and they can develop their personhood. People who hold to this type of theory believe in the power of the family to monitor and to heal itself in a way to be its own therapist. Kind of the opposite of that is the unhealthy family or the what they call the dysfunctional family. It's self-protective. It's rigid. It has a low risk tolerance and a high risk avoidance. It doesn't like risk. It likes to minimize risk. It likes to avoid risk. And when there's a lot of risk, it's very uncomfortable. Stability is kind of the focus of this dysfunctional family. And stability kind of becomes king of overall things, including flexibility. And change becomes very restrictive and the family gets stuck. And they feel that this kind of happens during life cycle changes. And what that kind of means is in the developmental pattern, there's times where we transition from one developmental stage to another developmental stage. And kind of in those transitional times when there's uncomfortability, when there's stress, when there's anxiety, when there's needed change, sometimes called morphogenesis, when there's that time for change, flexible families can do that. Whereas other families who are more rigid get kind of stuck. And because they get stuck, as we said earlier, somebody in the family or multiple individuals in the family have to give up something. They have to sacrifice either their role, their self-esteem, or other unpleasant emotions have to kind of be stuffed down in order for the family to survive that time. And when you read it in the family crucible, you see that a lot. You see that in kind of the, without giving too much of it away, spoiler alert, is that the family has cooled down in the marriage between husband and wife. And because of that, one of the children have become a scapegoat to address some of that tension. And so that's kind of the premise of symbolic experiential in a nutshell. Now we're going to get more in depth than this because they both have you know, symbolic, experiential, experiential, they both have their different little caveats that we're going to talk about. But in general, the theory is trying to give a family a new experience in session that's symbolic. The kind of general goal is personal growth. And how they see personal growth is congruence between who you are on the inside and who you are on the outside. I've a lot of times seen this theory represented by masks, you know, and then there's a happy mask and there's the sad mask and they're kind of together to represent this type of theory and kind of what that is meant to kind of 
be a metaphor for or a picture for is that sometimes stuff that's on the inside of us, people don't see because we're purposefully masking it. And, you know, maybe we're putting on a happy face to use a colloquialism, a happy face when we're sad. That's just a very simplistic way of looking at it. But oftentimes, for example, in a marriage, we have undiscussed expectations that aren't being met. And because we haven't discussed them, they're not being met, right? So then that leads to resentment, right? But instead of being honest and open and authentic with our partner, being vulnerable in a safe environment where there's trust and intimacy to talk about those things, instead we can't. So we put on a mask as if we're not struggling with that resentment. And this can be thousands of different things that people, we're very complex beings, And there's lots of ways that we can have stuff on the inside of us that we're masking on the outside. Another thing that we do this a lot with is shame. We mask shame with a face that's different. I always call it image management. We're managing our image because what's on the inside is different than what's on the outside. And so that's the goal is personal growth, to make what's on the inside the same as what's on the outside and vice versa. So there's not this disconnect between the two. Another goal is family symptom relief. Helping families to deal with the symptoms that have come from getting stuck. Change occurs through the therapist, and that's the important part, because it's very therapist-focused. Giving the family a broader family experience in the therapy session. And oftentimes this is symbolic, but it's not always symbolic. So we're going to see some interventions like family sculpting, where family members sculpt other family members to represent how they see them and vice versa. And it's very, very powerful intervention. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in our next episode. But I just want to finish up by comparing this type of therapy with kind of antithesis. So this therapy is very focused on the therapist, on the person, insight, observation, reflection. And the therapy that I see that is very different than this type of therapy, personally, through my perception, is DBT therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. And if you've ever experienced this type of therapy, it's connected to cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's a little bit different than that as well, even though that's kind of some of its base, some of its foundational theories kind of go into that. But DBT is utilized for all kinds of different types of mental illnesses, but has a very strong evidence-based usefulness for people who are struggling with borderline personality disorder and people who are struggling with suicide and parasuicide. And so DBT to me is very different than this because this is atheoretical. They feel that theories are restrictive. They feel that the therapist needs to be present and genuine. And that's kind of where some of that power comes from. And DBT is kind of opposite of that. DBT, as I've heard it referred to many times, is a canned therapy. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a proponent of DBT, you know, bear with me, canned sounds negative. But basically it means that it's an entire system in a book and in multiple books that is very cut and dry from point A to point Z. You know, so this is point A and this is how we get to point Z. This is how you do the therapy step by step by step. You do not deviate from step by step by step, right? So that therapy would actually see the therapist as the hindrance. And I have interacted with a lot of DBT therapists who find safety and the methodological nature of that system, where everything from point A to point B is spelled out for you, every intervention, and it's very heavily focused on intervention. 
and specific interventions. And oftentimes, therapists who practice DBT will say, if anything's gone wrong with the therapy, it's not the theory. It's not DBT because it goes from A to Z. And if you follow A to Z, it will be effective. It is the therapist who is ineffective. And that's why I want to contrast that with this because symbolic experiential would feel that that is the parallel opposite of what they want. They are not focused on theory or on all these methodologies and all these interventions, though they do have some of those. They actually feel those are restrictive. So I say that to compare the two, not to disparage DBT. I want to be very clear about that. DBT is an excellent therapy. The people who have developed the theory, who have worked to grow the theory, are geniuses, right? Way smarter than I will ever be. And the theory has saved an innumerable amount of lives from that type of therapy who are suicidal and parasuicidal. I don't want to disparage it at all because I have seen its effectiveness firsthand. And it's not the type of theory that I myself practice, though I have utilized some of the interventions because they're excellent. I just wanted to give it as an example to kind of give you how different it is these two types of therapies. Both therapies are effective and both therapies comprise an umbrella of family therapy and individual therapy. So I'm going to kind of end there for today. Next time we're going to talk more about the therapist and their particular version of experiential therapy. And then we're going to dive into some of the other versions of experiential therapy that fall under this umbrella. So I'm glad you're sticking with me and that I'm back from quarantine so that I can continue to go through some of this stuff. I'm excited. Here in the future, we're going to upload some more of those podcasts that I have been talking about previously. So I hope you are enjoying the content. And again, remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated and maybe you are, but you're not alone.